0: So brief overview, those of you who are new with us, there are four cornerstone classes. If you are in Pathways or if you're transferring to BYU or any of the church schools, there are four cornerstone classes you have to pass in order to graduate, four religion classes. If you go to BYU, you don't pass these four religion classes, you can't graduate. The four are Jesus and the Everlasting Gospel. That makes sense, right? We would never give a church diploma to anyone who hasn't taken a class on Jesus and the everlasting gospel. So how many scriptures would be included in that class? What would be the curriculum of that class? Every scripture we have, right? Old, new. Would, we, would you expect to study Old Testament? Yep. New Testament, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants? Yep. The whole gambit. The next one, or the one I, I, they come in an order, but I just, I don't want to get into that. The next one I want to point out is teaching the doctrines of the Book of Mormon. That makes sense, right? We're not going to give you a degree from a church school if you don't study the Book of Mormon. What's the curriculum for teachings and doctrines of the Book of Mormon? The Book of Mormon. So we're down to 500 pages. We went from all of them to 500 pages. Another one are, is Foundations of the Restoration. And again, that makes sense. You need to take a class on the restoration of the gospel. What would you expect to study in Foundations of the Restoration? Primarily, which book? The Doctrine and Covenants. We're going to focus on the Doctrine and Covenants. That leaves one last class that the church will not let you get a degree from the church if you don't pass the class. And that's the one you're in the eternal family. How many pages is our text for this class? One page, and it's not even the backside, front side of one page. Now clearly we're gonna refer to all the other scriptures, but Tell me what the church what the what the leaders of the church are saying by saying you can't have a degree from any church organization if you don't study in depthly that piece of paper. You tell me what that tells you about that piece of paper? So we are focused on now what's the one piece everyone else is, some people are look around and say what's the one piece what's the one piece of paper? It's the proclamation to the world on the family. Came out in 1995. That piece of paper is what we're going to study in this class. Now, let me give you a summary of that piece of paper. Last week, we talked about three eternal families. And I like that because of the symbolism of three. Three eternal families. So back in premortal life, we became children to eternal parents. We have a heavenly family family and there is a father and there is a mother and we belong to an eternal family and nothing you can do can excommunicate you out of that family you were you will forever be their child you are a child of heavenly parents Then we come down into this mortal life, and we try to form earthly families. I fell in love with a girl named Jennifer, and I asked her to marry me, and we've had 10 children, and five of them are married, and we have three grandchildren on the way this year. And we're just a little family. What started out as two, by the end of this year, will be 26. And it's growing. And the greatest desire of my life is to make that unit last for eternity. I would give all that I am to spend eternity with that unit. I have this little granddaughter who just has my heart wrapped around her little finger. And what I want more than anything else is to spend eternity with all of those people I love so dearly. So there's the question, how do I turn that one eternal? Now, we learn from the gospel that there's another possible family. Now, this is not one everyone belongs to. And maybe we ought to read this. We really ought to put this up on the screen. So turn with me to Mosiah chapter 5, Book of Mormon. Mosiah chapter 5, verse 7. If I make covenants with Christ, if I choose to follow him into the waters of baptism, and I make covenants with him, what then does Christ become? Someone read this one. Mosiah Mosiah 5, 7. Anyone want to read for me? Tell me your name. Amanda. Amanda, would you read that? Verse 7. Five, seven yep, 5-7. And now because of the covenant which you have made, you shall be called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. For behold, this day you have spiritually begotten you, and you say that your hearts are changed, through faith on his name. Therefore you are born of him and become his sons. There's another family. That's a whole other family I can belong to. It is the covenant family. I spell that right? Covenant. So I have, is there a mom and dad here? Is there a mom and dad in my earthly family that help and guide and I belong to them? They love me. They help me. They're trying to help me through this eternal existence. I have a mom and dad here. Are there moms and dads here? Is there a mom and dad in every family here? Is there a mom and dad here? Who is Christ Married to? Who would be the wife? Who would be the bride? If he's the bridegroom, who throughout all the scriptures is the bride? The church. And there's my mom. There's my mom. Now, behind that door, notice the sign behind that door is my mom's womb. And I come out of it. And I'm born into a new family. Do you see how all this works and all this fits? So I have a family here. Now this is a, I choose. This one is just a permanent thing. So notice the brilliance of the document we call the proclamation. Here is the proclamation. And I'm gonna do big picture for a second. And I, I colored three portions. So look at that, right? We've got a heavenly family, an earthly family, and a covenant family. And guess how the proclamation is laid out. Guess what it starts with. Let's start with red. How does the proclamation start out? Eternal family. That I am a child. I am a son of heavenly parents. A mother and a father. Now, we read about them for a while, and then we get to this paragraph and we're starting to talk about this family, husband and wife, and we end by saying, hey, if you wanna make that one eternal, become a member of this family, and then there's the third, there's the third family. Happiness in family life is most likely to be achieved when founded upon the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's the third family. Do you see the brilliance of the document? Just like there are three families in the timeline of my existence, the the proclamation says, let's talk about those three families. Now, that's where we left off last week. So, tell me the assumption or the unwritten principle he's trying to teach here. Let me say it out loud. If you want to make this one, if you want to be an eternal father or an eternal mother, you start by being what? A child. May I say step number one, you want to create an eternal family then you need to more fully participate in this family. Before we talk about how to parent, which we'll get into, I promise, we will digest that to great depth. How to parent, how to be a good mom, how to be a good dad, how to create an eternal family. But long before we get there, you know what we need to talk about? Letting them into your life. more fully being their child. I think that's today's, that's, that we've got to start there. And I think all of us kind of push him away, don't we? Why? We love him and at the same time. Will you admit it? We're scared of him. We're scared of him. We love him, and we're scared of him. Now, that's, that's not far-fetched. Let me give you an example, right? Any authority figure, anyone with power, has that same effect on us, okay? If I'm, if someone, if I woke up in the middle of the night to someone breaking into my house, if I heard that someone was breaking into my house, There's an intruder in my home. What two colors flashing outside would bring great relief and help me feel like everything's going to be okay? Red and blue. I'm so thrilled to see red and blue. But when I'm driving, (laughs) what two colors behind me bring absolute fear? See, it's the same thing. I love them and... I'm terrified of him. I love love heaven, I love God, I love Jesus. When they bless me and I'm terrified of them when I recognize my imperfections. So allow me to get very personal today and invite you to pull the wall down. Journey number one on being an eternal family here is more fully participating in the eternal family there. We need to stop being afraid. So give me today to see if I can convince you to stop being afraid. Now that's a lifetime journey I recognize, but walk with me through a a few scriptures. Let me see if I can make a case for letting him in. Now here's the thing. We can't really. Jocelyn. Um, I have this thing with my sister, Catherine, when she moved down, and I missed her a lot. So I talked to Heavenly Father more than one time. Good. That's an interesting comment. I'm going to improve my relationship with my sister by improving my relationship with Heavenly Father. Can I just testify before we jump into this? The best way to improve my relationship with my wife is to improve my relationship with God. That is an eternal truth, and I testify with all my soul. You want to improve your relationship with anyone else, improve your relationship with God. So here's what we're going to do. It's difficult to read about God, and so he said, I'll tell you what, I will send a stand-in. And so we get to read a whole lot about God by reading about... Jesus. Do you remember that moment in the New Testament where Philip says, show us the Father, and he says, haven't I been long with you that you don't know who I am? And then he taught them, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna talk about the natural fear we have of Jesus and compare it to the fear we have of Heavenly Father. So it's easy to read scriptures about being afraid of Jesus and how do we overcome that? Now, I'm a great fan of C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia. Tell me how C.S. Lewis portrayed Christ in the Chronicles of Narnia. As a big, scary lion. Who is the kindest, most gentle creature on earth? But he's a big, scary lion. Why would C.S. Lewis portray him as a massive lion? Do you see the idea? Do you see the idea that C.S. Lewis caught? That Jesus is scary. Until we open the door and let him in. And it's that barrier that we've got to break. So we're going to study Christ today, but you see what we're really trying to do? By studying Christ, I am trying to open the door to your Heavenly Father to let him in. The same reasons we're afraid of Christ are the reasons we're afraid of the Father. So let's study how do we let Christ in. Let's start in, I want to start with the woman with the issue of blood. Okay, so turn with you need Mark five and Luke eight. We're going to do both of them. So we need Mark five. We're going to jump back and forth and you'll see why. But let's do Mark five and Luke eight. We're going to start in the Mark five version. And I'm going to use this as an illustration of why we're scared of God. All right. Mark five. Here we go. Ready? Verse twenty five. I'll put these up on the screen. We can read them together. There was a certain woman which had an issue of blood. Now, I don't mean to be inappropriate, but that's a female issue of blood. This woman has a non-stop female issue for 12 years. Did you hear the gasp in the room, gentlemen? That gasp is telling you that this woman is desperate. And she is desperate. Okay, she a 12 year, are you kidding? Three months is hard. 12 years is killing her. Now under the law of Moses, and this is a subject for another day, a woman with an issue of blood at that particular time could not touch anyone, nor could anyone touch her. I know that's a subject for another, it sounds harsh, but someday we'll cover that. So she can't touch anyone. She can't be with her family. She can't touch anyone without them having to be ceremonially cleansed. And this has been going on for 12 years. This woman is desperate, isn't she? She's been to every doctor she can find and has only gotten worse until she hears of Jesus. Now here's where our love for him comes in. He can heal me. He could heal me. Are you kidding? No doctor can, but he can. But what's her fear? What does she say? I don't dare approach him. I don't dare ask. So what do I do? What was her plan? I am going to touch the hem of his garment. Now, when I say hem, you're thinking the hem of my pant. No, 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 that's not what they meant. The hem of the garment, if you want to go find you, the Bible dictionary will show you. But Jesus would have worn a tunic, a little cover, and there would have been a blue thread in the edge, and it wouldn't have come to a tassel. And when he walked, he would have thrown that tassel over his shoulder. So that tassel is the hem of his garment. Where would the hem of his garment have been? Behind him. Tell me what she wants to do. Sneak up behind and steal a blessing. Could you not notice me? Could I just sneak up? Now notice the next verse, Mark even points it out. When she heard of Jesus, she came in the press. There's our fear, right? I don't want him to notice. Could I just sneak up? How many of you feel that I would like Heavenly Father's blessings, but I just don't want to fully be noticed by him so we sneak up behind him and the moment she touches him tell me what happens the moment straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague tell me the emotion in her heart in- instant thrill right can you fi- can you sense the joy Now, may I suggest that that joy, I'll erase this, you guys remember this, may I suggest that there is, that joy is the Messiah we hope he is. The kind, forgiving, compassionate, loving, there's the Messiah I hope he is the one that heals, forgives, makes better. And she's feeling it, right? And then Jesus said, who touched me? Now tell me the emotion in her heart. Oh, (laughs) I I am in trouble. Now may I suggest that that is the Messiah There's the Messiah I'm afraid he might be The one that scares me The one that if I were to approach him would say you How could he possibly love me with all my warts? And there's the Messiah. We're worried he might be. Do you see the dilemma? And there we are right in between them. I love him. And I'm terrified of him. Example of what you meant by we want to still blessing, but you don't want to fully accept them? Like what what would we be doing now that would be like what she just did? in our hearts, let me give you an example. I know um, a young man's leader who called uh, one of the girls and said, We're going to the temple on our activity. And she said, I can't go. We're not going in. We're just gonna go around the temple. And she said, I know, I just don't want him to see me. I just don't want him to see me. But I want a blessing. I love him. I go to church. But I'm terrified of him. We just keep him out of our heart. Let me give you an example. Hello, Brother Dunford. This is the executive secretary. The bishop would like to meet with you this Sunday. Tell me what I do from every day from now till Sunday oh, no, what does he know? What have I done? Let me think through everything I've done. And what's my assumption? That I'm in trouble. And there it is. We do that with God and any authority figure. We're afraid of him and we love him. Now notice, how far away was she when he says, who touched me? How far away was she? How far away could she possibly have been? Do you think he waited a few hours and then said, who touched me about an hour ago? (laughs) It's immediate, right? Who touched me? And then he turned around. He turned him about, because where is she? He turned him about and said, who touched me? Now, notice, we got to go to Luke's account here. So pause here, and let's go to Luke 8. So jump to Luke. This is Mark 5. Let's go to Luke 8's account. As soon as Jesus says, who touched me, you've got to notice what happens. There it is in verse 45, Luke 8, 45, who touched me? What, what does it say? Including. I don't know how else to read that. Jesus said, who touched me, turned around, and what? She's got to be standing right there, right? And what does that phrase suggest she did? It wasn't me. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. I didn't touch you. Okay, forget it. I didn't mean it. Let's just forget this. Let me go back. She's terrified of him. As we all are in our hearts a little bit. If he were to say, Someone did something last night and I'd like to talk to them. Oh shoot, it's me. We instantly jump to that. Oh, forget it. When all denied. Now I think, tell me how you read this. How, when the woman saw that she was not hid. When the woman saw that she was not hid. How do you go from that? I think there's a story here. What is Jesus doing that would cause the woman to know she's not hid? I think he's staring at her. (laughs) Now, if I could personify that, I see this as Jesus looking at me saying, I'm right here, Bryce. When are we going to have the conversation we need to have and you won't have yet? I'm right here. I'm standing right here. When can we speak? When can we talk? When are you going to speak to me? I think that's the moment. He's just staring at me, pleading for that opening of my heart so that we can have a real conversation and take the fig leaves off and be vulnerable and let him in. She knew that she couldn't hide anymore, and that's the conclusion I think I have to come to. So now go back to Luke, or go back to Mark. I think this is the bravest moment in Scripture. I think no other moment in Scripture compares with this, and I invite you to make this your story. Mark chapter five. When she, first she says it wasn't me, I didn't, I didn't touch you, she denied, but then she saw that she wasn't hid. And then I love this phrase. I think this is one of the great moments in all of our lives. But the woman, fearing and trembling, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came down and fell, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. She took off the fig leaf. Here I am, scared to death. Please don't eat me, you big scary lion. But here I am, do you see that moment? I invite every one of you to have that moment. When you finally open the door, you, you, you embrace your vulnerability and you let him fully in. Now, let me share two C.S. Lewis moments that kind of personify that. I love that he caught that vision. I love that he I love that it's a big scary lion that personifies Christ. And so in the sixth book, in the silver chair, there's a girl named Jill who comes into Narnia Knows nothing about Aslan. She's dreadfully thirsty. She hears water running. And she comes to the source of the water. And sitting right in front of the water. What, what would you guess? Is a big scary lion. Now do you see the symbolism of this moment? On that side is the water I am dying to drink. All the healing. All the help, all the blessing, all the understanding, all the hope in that water is the healing I'm hoping to drink. And standing in front of it is a big scary lion. And they have this conversation. Let's pull it up. We'll read it together. Sorry, I had to jump to another spot. All right. If you are thirsty, let me max them. Sorry. If you are thirsty, drink. You want healing? You want help? You want strength, hope, power? If you are thirsty, come and drink. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. Oh, I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion may i could i would you mind going away while i do can i drink with you gone can i sneak up and steal a blessing behind you Would you mind going away while I do? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? I'm scared what you're going to do to me. I'm scared of what you're going to ask of me. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she'd come a step nearer. Do you eat, girls? I have swallowed up girls and boys. Women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink. I'm scared. I don't dare. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming a step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream. Now tell me how many people you love are doing that. There's the stream that they really want to drink out of. And there's the lion in front of it. So I'm going to go look for how many of you, how many people you love are looking for a stream that doesn't exist? Trying to find happiness some other way. For whatever reason. So tell me what Aslan says to Jill. There is no other stream. There is no other stream, there is no other way to drink from that water than going right through him. Faith, repentance, baptism, covenants. You gotta go right through him. But then you get to drink. Now tell me where C.S. Lewis got this story, right? Fearing and trembling. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen its stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made up. It was the worst thing she ever had had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down and began scooping up water in her hand. Now, can I just testify of what's on the other end? When you open the door, Can I testify of what he brings into your life when you fully embrace him? It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it for it quenched your thirst at once. How good is the water he offers if you'll fully embrace him and let him in? Now, I think you've all seen that picture of Jesus standing at the door knocking, right? You've all seen this picture. And what do you notice? There's no door handle. You have to open him up, right? Tell me what's going on on the other side of that door. Okay, Jesus says, I'll be there at 5 o'clock. What do you do all day? I'm coming to your house at 5 o'clock. Tell me what you do all day long. Now, Do you see the the irony? I'm going to let Jesus in when everything's clean. That's not how it should work, because why? The one thing he wants to do. Tell me the one thing he wants to do is clean the house. You will clean it better, faster, more efficiently, and you'll be happier doing it if he cleans with you. But when do we let him in? I'll let you in when I'm dressed in my Sunday clothes and my house is clean. And that's the dumbest thing in the world. Open the door and let him in when you're dripping with mud and everything's a disaster. Because then he cleans up with us. Do you see why we're terrified of him? Please. So there's actually, it's another CS. From mere Christianity, where he talks about like what repentance is, um, I have it pulled up because I'm extra. Um, but he's talking about how like describing what repentance is, and repentance means like killing part of ourselves and um, like unlearning and training ourselves how to be not this natural version of ourselves. And he says in the book, um, he's saying like repentance is not something that God asks you to do before you come to Him. It's just the process of what coming back to him is like. Yes. Um and so that's what I was thinking of because it's like the um like we know that we're imperfect and we're afraid to face him because we know that facing him means facing our imperfections and having yeah. to like change ourselves. And that's a big scary process. Yep. So I think that's what the fear is. Yep. From. That is I'm terrified to open that door. Now let's be honest. Why do you clean up when guests come? Why would you clean up when he came? What is the real fear here? I think there's a fear of change. I think that's a fear of change, but tell me why we keep him at a distance and don't open the door. Why don't you let the neighbors in when the house is a mess? I'm afraid of their shame, right? I'm afraid of their condemnation. Now, can I teach you something about Christ? that none of you believe because no one in your whole life ever does this. And it's easy to assume that he doesn't do it because no one else does. How many neighbors would walk in and probably judge you? How many neighbors would walk in and oh my gosh, this place is a disaster. So there's some truth to the fact that I keep the door closed because I would get shame. And we make the assumption that he is going to shame me. That what I get from Christ is disappointment. Now, let me show you one of the beautiful moments of the scriptures. An adulterous woman is brought to Jesus. Watch Jesus, an adulterous woman. Turn to John chapter eight. Watch Jesus with an adulterous woman who just committed that crime. Now, the real story here is the Jews, the Jewish leaders are trying to destroy Jesus, and that's a long story, but he says. He that is without sin among you. Let him first cast a stone at her. Did someone qualify? Did someone qualify to throw the stone? Yes. And does he? There is an eternal truth I would beg you to believe. The one person who can throw a stone doesn't. He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone. He had every legal right to stone her by that definition, and he didn't. Had he not said that, what would all of the others have done? They would have thrown a stone. But the one person who had a right to didn't. In fact, when they all leave because they're condemned by their, guilt, their conscience and it's just the Savior and the woman and he looks up and says, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? No man, she said. No man has condemned me. Then tell me what Jesus said to a sinful woman. Neither do I condemn thee. Did he condone her? Look at this phrase. Did he condone her? It's fine. Adultery doesn't matter to me, so it's just fine. Jesus is capable of judging without condemnation. If you were to face him, it is not shame you would feel. He does not condemn. Now, does he make it clear that you need to change? Is he able to somehow send the message that you need to change your behavior without shaming you? Now, there's a footnote you've got to see. After he said, Neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Tell me what the woman, what happened. This is a marvelous moment. Tell me what the woman did. She walked away glorifying God. An adulterous woman walked away lifted, and yet, is she going to change? Is, does she know she needs to change her behavior? And yet she walked away lifted. That is your heavenly father. That is your savior. But you're not fully letting them in because what do you expect them to do when, when we open that door? Throw the stone if you can get it into your head, that they do not throw stones. They come in and clean. They lift, they inspire. You walk away wanting to change without shamed into doing so. I have begged my whole life for the ability to do that with my children and I I don't know how they do it, but I know they do. I would pray that you will open the door, trusting that it's not the shame you're afraid of that you're going to get. he will clean, he'll clean. Don't wait till you're in your Sunday best and the house is clean before you let him in who wanted to help clean in the first place. With all my soul, I testify that that is the relationship we ought to have. If you invite him in, can I tell you what you're going to get? Now, one last C.S. Lewis story. Um, The third in the series is called uh, The Horse and Its Boy. The Horse and His Boy. It's the story of two children and two horses escaping Calarman and trying to get to Narnia and be free. And they go through some horrible challenges. The boy's name is Shasta. And Shasta has been chased by by lions. Um, Erebus, the other girl, was scratched on her back. There was this all these horrible things that happened. And now he's riding on a horse. He's got to send a message. It's in the middle of the night. It's dark and he's lamenting how horrible his life is. And this is one of the most beautiful moments in all of the Chronicles of Narnia. Let me just read the story. We'll let C.S. Lewis tell it. So book three, if you're interested, The Horse and His Boy, and here we go. Ready? I do think, said Shasta, that I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the whole world. Everything goes right for everyone except me. Now, those of you who've never said that, raise your hand, none of you can. We've all said it, right? Everything goes right for everyone except me. Those Narnian lords, lords and ladies got safe away from Tashban. I was left behind. Erebus and Brian Wynne, Erebus is the girl, Brian Wynne are the horses, are all snug as anything up with the old hermit. Of course, I was the one who was sent on. King Loon and his people must have got safely into the castle and shut the gates before Rabadash arrived, but I was left out. And being very tired and having nothing inside him, he felt so sorry for himself that tears rolled down his cheeks. What put a stop to all of this was a sudden fright. Shasta discovered that someone or somebody was walking beside him. It was pitch dark and he could see nothing. And the thing or person was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. There's Jesus. I can hear him breathing. His invisible invisible companion seemed to breathe out on a very large scale, and Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature. And he had come to notice this breathing so gradually that he had really no idea how long it had been there. It was a horrible shock. So what's the first reaction to a lion being next to him? He's terrified. It darted into his mind that he had heard long ago that there were there were giants in these northern countries. He bit his lip in terror. But now that he really had something to cry about, he stopped crying. The thing, unless it was a person, went on beside him so quietly that Shasta began to hope he had only imagined it. But just as he was becoming quite sure of it, there suddenly came a deep, rich sigh out of the darkness beside him. That couldn't be imagination. Anyway, he had felt the hot breath of that sigh on his chilly left hand. If the horse had, be, had been any good, now this is our instinct, I want to run, I want to run from Christ. If the horse hadn't been any good, or if he'd known how to get any good out of the horse, he would have risked everything on a breakaway and a wild gallop. But he knew he couldn't make that horse gallop. So he went on walking at a walking pace, and his unseen companion walked and breathed beside him. At last he could bear it no longer. Here's the moment, fearing and trembling. Who are you? He said, scarcely above a whisper. Now, please listen to this. I think this is one of the best things C.S. Lewis ever wrote. Who are you? Who are you, Heavenly Father? Heavenly Father, are you really there? And do you hear and answer every child's prayer? Who are you? One who has waited long for you to speak, said the thing. Its voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Are you a giant, said Shasta? You might call me a giant, said the large voice, but I am not like the creatures you call giants. I can't see you at all, said Shasta, after staring very hard then, for an even more terrible idea had come into his head. He said, almost in a scream, you're not something dead, are you? Oh, please, please do go away. What harm have I ever done you? Oh, I am the most, uh, the unluckiest boy in the whole world. Isn't that our normal reaction? Would you mind going away while I drink the water? Once more, he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and and face. There, it said, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. Shasta was a little reassured by the breath. So he told how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. And then he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and all of their dangers in Tashban and about the night among the tombs and how the beasts howled at him out of the desert. And he told about the heat and the thirst of the desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Ereves and also how long it had been since he had had anything to eat. I don't call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I just told you that there were at least two the first night, and there was only one, and it, but it was swift of foot. How do you know I was the lion? And Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing. His voice continued. I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat. wakeful at midnight to receive you. Do you see the realization? Let me clean the house. I have always been there. Then it was you who wounded Erebus. It was I. But what for? I love this. Ready? Child, I'm telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Who are you, said Shasta. Myself, said the voice. Very low, very deep, very low, so that the earth shook. And again, myself. Loud and clear and gay, and then the third time, myself. I am that I am. Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him, nor that it was the voice of a ghost. But a new and different sort of trembling came over him. Yet he felt glad too. I got to skip. Let's go to the last paragraph. The high king above all kings stooped toward him. Its mane and some strange and solemn perfume that hung about the mane was all about him. It touched his forehead with its tongue. He lifted his face and their eyes met. Now, what are you going to get in his eyes? Shame? Disappointment? Then instantly the pale brightness of the mist and the fiery brightness of the lion rolled themselves together into a swirling glory and gathered themselves up and disappeared. And he was alone with the horse on a grassy hill beside a blue sky and there were birds singing. I leave you my witness that if you will open that door, if you will, fearing and trembling, kneel down and drink the water, it will be the coldest, most refreshing water you've ever tasted. Life with Heavenly Father in it is better than life without Him. And wherever you stand with Him, fully invite Him in as a friend, as a partner, as your eternal father. And nothing you can do will better every relationship in your life than improve that relationship. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.